Well, it's my great joy on this first Lord's Day of this new year, as we begin our thinking about all things, to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Romans chapter 11. We're going to look together verses 33 through 36 this morning. I invite you to stand in reverence to the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God, and I ask you to stand knowing that in the Scripture... And in the Scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. And I trust that it fills us with a sense of anticipation, knowing that as we read the Bible this morning, we're reading the one book that reads us as well. It's able to cut us to the heart, to change us, to transform us. And glory be to God that that would be the case today. Romans chapter 11 Beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him... And through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer, the One with a kingdom that knows no end. Lord, as we open Your Word today, change us. Give us a greater sense of understanding of who you are and what you've done. Expand our finite minds with your infinite glory. May we walk out of here today feeling the weight of the wonder of your glory in a way we did not when we came. For we can never, ever know it well enough. Oh Lord, help us today. Help us to know the glory of the all things, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Your God is too small. That was the title of a book written by J.B. Phillips in 1953. But it's really a book as far as the, the message of the title that ought to be published every year. It's an important message in every generation. Our thoughts about God are never big enough. But nothing could be more important than our giving ourselves to understand the glory and immensity of the great triune God. To contemplate who He is. To give ourselves to thinking about the wonder and reality of God. In London in 1855, There was a 20-year-old preacher, and he was preaching one of his first sermons as a pastor. His name was Charles Spurgeon. And one of those first sermons said this, The proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. 
The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom He calls His Father. See, our failure to give ourselves to knowing and thinking about who God is and what He's done. Knowing God and applying our lives to what He's done, applying our lives to the Gospel, is at the root of all of our failures, all of our difficulties, all of our problems. And the most exalted explanation of who God is and what His Gospel is Anywhere in the world, including Scripture, is the explanation given in the book of Romans chapters 1 through 11. It's this incredible treatise on God and His gospel. It begins in the first chapter saying, the Apostle Paul saying, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And he works that out in this thunderous declaration that gives great detail and argumentation to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes us to time and eternity. It takes us to history and eschatology, just a fancy word for the study of the end, how all of this is headed somewhere. At the beginning of the book, it, it talks to us about the lostness of man. And enfolds it in such a way and boxes us in. There is none righteous, no, not one. And we have a sense of what it means that we are sinners and the predicament that that puts us in. But the answer to that is what God has done. What God has done in Christ by His death, burial, and resurrection. That we can be justified by faith, declared righteous by faith, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. So there is an answer to our lostness, and we can be declared righteous in the sight of God, innocent because of what Christ has done, clothed in His righteousness, accepted into the family of God. And then he explains how in this life that we live as a Christian, we are sanctified, we we are being made more like Christ by the power of the Spirit of God that is at work within us. And then he reminds us that that all of this is because we are chosen by the sovereign grace of God. Whether we understand it or not, no one is saved by anything but the grace of God and the purpose of God. And he works that out talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and, and, and the Jews who, who were rejecting Christ and saying, oh, but God has a plan. God is going to bring many Jews into the fold, but, but God is at work among the Gentiles. And, and by what God is doing, these who are naturally looked down upon in one another wouldn't have much to do with one another. Now together constitute the children of God, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. If they are in Christ, he says they are the children of God. And they come together in one family. And these people constitute the the bride of Christ. You see, this is the wonder of what he unfolds here in the book of Romans. In chapters 1 through 11. 
And the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther says, it can never be pondered enough. We must think about it again and again. We must remember our lostness, that justification by faith alone because of the death, burial, and resurrection is our only hope. We must remember that, that any ground of growth that happens in our life is also by faith in God's grace alone. We are sanctified by the work of the indwelling Spirit within us, and we are only a part of this because of the purpose of a sovereign God. And though we can't understand it all, we rest in His sovereign grace. You see, what does Paul do after the most detailed, logical, expansive explanation of God and the gospel found anywhere? What does he do next? Let me explain it like this. If you are a climber and you've, you've ever gotten to the summit, now, I have climbed and gotten to the top of something. I wouldn't call it a summit. Been on a few hills. One thing in Montana that may have been considered a little more than a hill. If you like to climb things, great. I don't understand you, but great. But, but when you put the effort in, for me, the effort to get to the, the top of that peak that I, I climbed in Montana, and, and, and you get there, and you put all that effort in, and you get to the top, what do you do? You just tag the top and say, okay, did that, and head down? Is that what anybody who has taken the effort to climb to the top of something has ever done? No. What do you do? You get to the top and you say, look. Wow. Because it's probably a good view or you wouldn't have bothered climbing to the top of it. Hey? And you, you look at this and you take it in. And in the moment, if the view is good enough, the effort was worth it to you. You just have a sense of wonder now at what you're seeing. That's what he's doing here in the doxology in Romans 11, 33-36. Doxology just means glory words, praise words. He, he's taking it in. All of this explanation, all of this detail, all of this expansive explanation into these incredible things that stretch the mind, and he just pauses and takes it in as he is on the mountaintop of all understanding of all things in the world, which is God and his gospel. So the first thing we see in verse 33 is this, celebrate God's incomprehensible Riches and wisdom. Look with me at Romans eleven thirty three. The first word, oh, <laughs> that's what we're talking about. He he just stops. He, he says, oh, that that word is actually there in the Greek. It, it's an interjection. It's it's an exclamation. It's kind of that kind of word that you use when you know the other words that you use will not be enough. Nobody has ever gotten to the top of something like Mount Everest and, and gotten to the top and said, well, you know, as I look out upon Mount Everest right now, I, that's not the way you do it. 
You get to the top and you say, look. He says, oh, here. He, he, there, 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 I don't know who said it, but there, there's a, a, a phrase that goes like this. Where the legs of reason grow weary, the heart may yet soar. Okay, I've explained, I've explained, I've put it all down. But, but all of this understanding of the greatest truths of biblical theology produces doxology. Let's just stop and say, oh, consider this. And by the way, if whatever you're studying in biblical theology doesn't lead to doxology, you don't understand it right. You've corrupted it in some, some way. Because the whole message of the book is about the greatness and goodness of God to his people. And we're to constantly be a people, like we see Paul, where he just pauses in the midst of it all and says, oh, and I hope this week that there are times in which you just say, oh. And then he says this, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, the depth. The, 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 the idea here, the, the word here is for, for, for depth so great that you, you can't get to the bottom. An inexhaustible depth. All that he's been trying to explain, he communicates here that there is a, a depth to it. What he describes as the riches. There are the inexhaustible riches of God. He's talked about riches throughout the book. Uh, in 2.4, he talks about the riches of his kindness. In chapter 9, verse 20, uh, 33, he talks about the riches of his glory. In chapter 10, verse 12, he talks about bestowing riches on all who call on him. Riches of his kindness, his glory that he bestows on all who call on him. The depth of his riches. He lacks no resources. His resources never come to an end. He never comes to the end of his kindness. He never comes to an end of his glory. He never comes to the end of his mercy. He never comes to the end of his holiness. He never comes to the end of his majesty. He never comes to an end of His grace. Oh, the depth of the riches. And then this. And wisdom and knowledge of God. The, the depths of the, the riches, His resources know no end, but neither do His wisdom or His knowledge. He is all-wise and He is all-knowing. Wisdom and knowledge aren't exactly the same thing, Wisdom is the application of knowledge, and he has all knowledge, and he perfectly applies that knowledge and acts on the basis of it without exception. You see, he has no questions, and he lacks for no answers. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And now it says, how unsearchable are his judgments. The word judgment, his decisions. What he thinks and what he decides. 
what he thinks and what he decides because there is an inexhaustible death to what he knows and his wisdom it describes here as unsearchable, unfathomable. It cannot be found out by searching. You cannot get on top of what God thinks and he knows. You can't. It is unsearchable. But then he also includes here, and how inscrutable, I love the word, are his ways. His ways are where he goes and what he does. So you can't get on top of what he thinks and what he decides. And inscrutable means it can't be traced out. There are footprints, but you can never figure those footprints out. It is un- he is untrackable. He cannot be tracked down. His decisions, what he thinks and what he does are unsearchable to us. We cannot have him figured out in the totality ever at any time. But what we do know is that we walk this path and that he has kept every promise. And he has kept those promises in ways that we thought at times were wrong. But guess what? He was right and we are wrong. So when we look to the future and we think he says this, but I don't know exactly how that's going to work out. And it seems like doing what he says to do would lead the wrong way. We know that he is right and we are wrong. He can't be traced out, but he can be trusted. Do you see it? Do you feel it? You see, this doxology is meant to be felt, internalized, transformative. God's wisdom and knowledge planned salvation, and God's riches bestowed it. Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways that he would save somebody like me. Or somebody like you? How unsearchable are his decisions? How inscrutable what he does that he would give the perfect Son of God to die on a cross and be raised from the dead to save people like us. You know, when I read these words, I, I think of Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, I was uh, a young guy uh, coaching. All I'd ever really done was athletics in my life and uh, focused on that, and, and here I am, and I'm coaching at a high school, and, and there's this gnawing conviction that God has called me to preach the gospel. I didn't even hardly go to church until I was under conviction, and I was older, and so I didn't really grow up in church or, or have that as a part of my life. It was still fairly new to me, but, but this conviction was there, and I kept running away from it. But I was invited to teach a, a small group at our, our church, and it was going really well and grew really big. And I was ministering to these people, but I'm still running away from it with everything I've got because I am comfortable coaching. 
I'm not comfortable thinking about this path. And then one day I was preparing to teach and I read those words, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than yours. And that was it. Okay. I can't trace it out. I don't understand why you would do it. But I trust you. And I surrendered to a call to preach the gospel. That's how God worked it out. His unsearchable, inscrutable ways. You know, we're often like the young child demanding answers to things that they can't understand, right? You, know, you, have, a, you have a little child and uh, <clears throat> you tell them to do something. Are we switching? All right, young child, and you tell them to do something, and uh, why? Why would we do that? What is that? And you know that if you gave them the explanation, they're going to be looking at you like your dog looks at you. Like, <laughs> you're talking, but okay. I don't know what you're saying. But, but, the, but the child acts as though, I, I can't go on and do what you want me to do unless I understand this. Well, you can't understand this. Stop it. Do what I told you to do. Did I feed you for the last year? Then trust me. I've got your best interest at heart. We're often like that. God is, if you think God is only calling you to places where you don't have a beat in your heart, like, I shouldn't do that. That's not what I ought to do. If, if you think God is only calling you to places where you're like, yeah, this makes perfect sense, you don't understand Him at all. You haven't walked with Him very closely. Now, he calls us all the time to places where we have to say, I do not understand why I should do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. You see, it's, it's not that we do not know things about God. We do. God has revealed Himself to us. Praise God that we have His Word, that He has told us who we is, that we can give ourselves to that. But it is this, that we are to know that we can never exhaust anything that we know about God. There's always more to God than we can ever comprehend in ourselves. His grace is always deeper. His mercy is always deeper. But Paul continues with, with two rhetorical questions from the Old Testament. All right. Now I'm going to try taking the jacket off and <laughs> let's see if that'll help. But those two rhetorical questions point us in a direction. And that is that we acknowledge God's absolute otherness. Look with me at Romans 11, 34 and 35. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Remember, His wisdom and knowledge has a depth that is inexhaustible. This is a quotation here of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. It appears in a, a long series of songs about God's power and God's rescue and about God's ability to save His people from exile and ultimately to send them a deliverer. 
This is the God who does this. He doesn't need advice. He's never in doubt. He's never wondering what to do. And no one has ever been His counselor, including me or you. God's Word says God can't be taught. God can't be taught. We had the grandkids over for a little bit while Luke and Kaylin went on a trip. And and one of the first things that was happening is one of those grandkids felt like he needed to tell Judy and I how to deal with the kids. (laughs) I guess he's looking at us. They're really inexperienced. They've only had eight. I'm a few years old. Well, well, what you need to do is this. One of them said to me, you know, I was saying, calm down. Well, you know, one of the things that helps us to calm down, I said, stop it. I don't care what you think. (laughs) Here's one thing that'll help you calm down. I said it, right? You're going to lecture me? You, You think I need your wisdom on how to deal with little kids? Buddy, I was dealing with little kids when you weren't a thought in anybody's mind. I got experience here. I don't need your advice. God can't be taught. Oh, I can be taught plenty, even about parenting, just not from a five year old. (laughs) But God can't be taught. I love what Martin Luther said here. He said, We are more accustomed to admit freely that God is more powerful than we are, but not that He is wiser. You know that's true. Think about it. Never once have you probably thought yourself, you know, I'm more powerful than God. Never, we, we don't have any tr- trouble humbling ourselves about the issue of power very often. We know God can do things we can't do. But you know where pride often attacks? It attacks in our thinking. And and consider how many times you've thought that God was leading you down the wrong path. Or that what God allowed to unfold in your life, it doesn't make any sense. It's not right. You see, with our mind, we are so apt to question God. We are so apt with our mind to think that we are wiser than God. All of us have done that. Well, we should take note that that's one of the areas in which Satan attacks us. We we always want a mathematical formula in our lives. We know that if we do this, plus this, then this should happen. And God keeps having us do this and this, and then something else has happened, and we're like, you're getting it wrong, God. God can't be taught. You and I can. When this plus this doesn't equal this, God is teaching you. It's not time for you to teach Him. God cannot be taught. He is other than us. He is not just like us, but a little bit better. So often we want God on our own terms. We want to act like God thinks like I do, except a little bit better. God thinks that things should unfold the way I think they should unfold. But that's never the case. 
We are to be wide-eyed learners in the sight of God. I can be taught every moment of every day, but I must stake this in the ground, and he roots it in the Old Testament. God can't be taught. But secondly, he says God can't be bought. Verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? After all, he has riches that have an inexhaustible depth. How in the world can anybody give him a gift and make him a debtor? The phrase here is from Job 41.11. In this section, God asked Job over 60 questions. Kind of like, where were you when I hung the stars and the moon in the sky? <laughs> where were you when that happened? You, you, you question me, and in these 60 questions, it unveils to us God's power. It unveils to us God's sovereignty and the impossibility that, that, that anything could be his debtor. Remember, Job tells us in the beginning that in a way we account righteousness, Job was a righteous man, and yet all of these things happened to him. And so the idea of if he was a righteous man, why are all these things happening to, to him? In fact, you owe him more because he is a righteous man. And then we get to Job 41.11. Who has given him a gift that he may be repaid? God can't be bought. There is nothing that we can do that would make him our debtor. And by the way, do you realize how absurd this makes any notion of works-based salvation? Any notion of works that I offer to God is the idea that now that I've done this, he's a debtor and he has to give me this. There's nothing. God has no needs. How can you make him a debtor? Because he has no needs, he can't be bought. He was never needy. He will never be needy. There is nothing ever to supply what he lacks because he lacks nothing. Now, some of us say, well, yeah, okay, but is that good for us? Yes! It's wonderful for us. In fact, it's the only ground of our hope. I love 1 Corinthians 4, 7, the Apostle Paul. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In 1 Chronicles, David, they've raised all this money for, 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 for a building and they're celebrating it. And one of the things David says in the celebration is, we have not given anything that you have not given us. In other words, we have only given out of the riches that you poured out on us. So when we give out of what you have given us, it does not make you a debtor. When I give my kid $20 so they can buy me a Christmas present, and they give me that present, I am not their debtor. They wouldn't have bought it without my riches. God can't be bought. You can never make Him your debtor. Why is that such good news? Because if He has poured out His love on you, if He's brought you into relationship with Him, it's for no reason other than the commitment of His heart to love you. There is nothing transactional about God's relationship with His people. 
transactional, you know, okay, I want that, that's $15, I'll pay it, I get that. If it doesn't work right, hey, this is not, you didn't give me your end of the deal. There is no end of the deal. God just chooses to love. One of the problems we have with all relationships is they are some measure transactional because we struggle with sin, God doesn't. You're in a marriage relationship. Love each other 100% no matter what the other partner does. Yeah, but it's really hard because when they don't do what I want them to do, I want to pull back and say, I'm not doing this unless you do that. And all relationships are in some sense transactional except for this one. God can't be bought. You don't have a transactional relationship with God. God loves you if He loves you because He loves you in spite of who you are. You never brought anything but to the deal but your own sin. And therefore, since God is not your debtor, you can bask in knowing His non-transactional love for all eternity. His riches are His riches, but He's poured them out on you. His wisdom is His wisdom and knowledge, and yet He has let you in on it. And it is bottomless. And by His grace, not to earn anything in His sight, you and I are taught by the truth of His Word. And you and I are rich toward God out of the resources He has given. We don't have transactional love with God because He can't be bought. So what we have is pure, unadulterated love rooted in His grace. If you don't think that's good news, then you don't understand it. Finally, in verse 36, we are called to confess God as the all things God. He can't be taught and He can't be bought. Further explained in verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. From, through, and to. From Him. He is the source of all things. He is the Creator. He is the one that's the ultimate source of everything. Through Him. It comes by means of Him. And He is the sustainer of all things. He is the ruler of all things. And finally, to Him, He is the goal of all things, the ultimate end of all things, the purpose of all things. The reason God spoke the worlds into existence and said, let there be light, is that He is Creator God. Would create a world that He would sustain and by which He would ultimately bring back to Himself that it would glorify Him. He is the ultimate end. God said, let there be light because Jesus will be the light of the new heavens and new earth. You see, it all has a purpose. It's headed somewhere. There's a goal. There's an ultimate end to it all. Nothing that God created did He create for anything other than His glory. He is the source the means, the goal. He is the creator, the sustainer, the ultimate end. 
He is infinite, supreme, sovereign over what? All things. What does all things refer to? All things. We are limited. We are finite. We are not all things people we can't be. We have to trust the all things God. That's the reason why it is never to us be the glory. It's always to Him be the glory. What, what, what are the all things? Well, well, He's the God who created earth and created the sun 93 uh, million miles away. He is the God who created us, created earth. And He put us in a galaxy called the Milky Way, which is one of billions of galaxies. And He is the God who created that that flower that you might walk by when you go home and that little flower is filled with beauty and you pause and and look at it with a sense of wonder appreciating its beauty. Siri, you're wrong. Be quiet. You see both those things? The all things God. We're to, we're to think about this galaxy and billions of galaxies. And we're to be look, this is the all things God. He is so immense, but His care is so delicate. It extends down to the tiniest of flowers. Think about that. He is the creator of the mountains and the lakes and the beaches. He is the creator of all, creator of all image bearers who make buildings and music and art and the sports that we enjoy. And and C.S. Lewis said something very important that that transforms our thinking about what it means to give glory to the all things God. He said that we should always back up the sunbeam to the sun. Right? Just think, you feel the warmth of the sun on you, and you go, okay, just think about this ray. It has nothing to do with anything else. Uh, No. You think, the sun, oh, the sun. There's a source to this gift that I'm experiencing. That's what we're to do all the time. You don't just appreciate the beauty of a flower. You think about the one who is the creator of all things. You you, you think about the one who for uh, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. You don't just think about the immensity of billions of galaxies and we're one of those. You think about the God who created. I love uh, Theodore Roosevelt had a friend who was a, uh, a scientist, a biologist, uh, an expert in all these. He would have him over and he would pepper him with questions about how big the cosmos are and all, all this kind of things. And then he would say, okay, now we're small enough. Let's go to bed, right? We see how big all of this is. We're, we're small enough that lest we think too much of ourselves. But, but you see, all of this is, is chasing the sun being back to the sun. All of our observation in life when it's been transformed by the grace of a sovereign God should end in adoration. We are never satisfied with, with, with just looking at a pleasure in this life without chasing it back to the one who has made a world that we can experience these pleasures, who ultimately is the one that we are to live to please now and forever. The great all thing God. You see, when we live like this, when we think like this, when we're transformed like this, when our theology has produced doxology, there's an inevitable response, and it's this, to Him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. To Him be glory forever. 
all men and all things are for His glory. Oh, and that includes everything. But it also includes salvation, which this great treatise is about. God is the source of our salvation. If you know salvation, if you have salvation, if you are in Christ, it is from Him. It's God's grace and power in Christ that is the means of our salvation. It is through Him, through Christ. And it's to Him all glory is due forever. If you are saved, if you are a part of the people of God, if you are united by faith to Christ, it is to Him for all eternity. And one day you'll gather in a new heaven and a new earth when you will see all of these pleasures even outside of the presence of sin. And you will sing about His glory and His greatness forever and ever. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Many people feel as though they cannot worship God unless they understand everything. Everything about Him and His ways. I want to assure you today that He is only worthy of worship if you can't understand everything about Him and His ways. It's not an argument against trusting in Him. If you could understand everything about Him, then you trust you. If you know everything about His ways, then go with your plan. No, what you and I desperately need is what is outside of us. What is above us. What is beyond sin? You see, it's because He is inscrutable. And He is unsearchable. It's because His riches and wisdom and knowledge are inexhaustible. It's because you can never become His counselor. It's because you can never make Him your debtor that you can trust Him not only now, but for all eternity. He is the unsearchable, inscrutable God of all things, including the salvation of all who believe. Glory be to Him forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for this portion of Your Word. I thank You for this assembled body today. I thank You for the privilege to sing, to reflect back to You the glory of who You have revealed Yourself to be. I thank You for the way You teach us when we lift our voices together. I thank You for the privilege to pray, to give, and to to open Your Word together. Oh Lord, We will never exhaust the depths of Your riches, Your wisdom, Your knowledge. But, O Lord, we want to know You more. And, O Lord, I pray that today would be a day in which You help us to walk out of here feeling the weight of Your glory more than when we came. Some, for the first time, are putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one in whom there is salvation. The only one in whom there is forgiveness of sins. 
the only one who was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, the only one who was resurrected as the right hand of the Father and one day will return. Oh Lord, I pray that any apart from him would look to him this very day. And Lord, for everyone in here, may we stop trying to be your counselor and may we mock the idea that you could, we could make you our debtor and may we bathe and your unadulterated, pure, sovereign, gracious love in Christ. Oh Lord, indeed. May you have the glory forever. Amen.